This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello. If you're hearing my voice right now, then you have stumbled onto the podcast where real stories of professional criminal profilers are told by professional assholes. Welcome to Profiling Pain. How's it going, co-filers? Uh, so, we are going to be doing a new episode this week. Uh, this is the debut of Side Profiles, where it's still true crime. It's still uh, murders and everything else like that. Not this case, however. But, uh, except for, we're going to be doing it all about music. So, Side Profiles are going to be a little in between our episodes, based around music. Um, also, with that, we're going to be teaming up with the guys from Rap Sheets. Um, they currently are doing a f- Facebook Live uh, comparison show. Um, they compare artists or they compare songs, lyrics, stuff like that. Um, but they're gonna be starting their podcast debut on this show. Um, so hopefully they figure out what they like and how they want to do it. And I don't know that they're gonna do true crime so much, but with the crossover episode, we will be doing true crime. We're gonna be covering Jam Master J. So if you've even paid attention to the news remotely, you know that they recently caught his murderers. And we'll get into all that sometime in October. In the meantime, this episode is going to be all about old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra. So uh, we're going to go through a couple different timelines. The first timeline is going to be what the public knows about Frank Sinatra, um, his career, his musical career, his albums. And then the second timeline we're going to go over is going to be actually his family ties to the mob, his ties to the mob, what the FBI felt about him, and so on and so forth from his birth to his death. So, no real current events we're going to cover this one. We're going to keep this one straightforward since we do have the two timelines. Um, And then, after this, we'll get back into Ted Bundy on the next episode where we are going to move into Utah and Colorado. Um, Again, that's a really crazy story. It's a lot of fun. Um, Except for, you know, the tragedies that happen with it, obviously. But in the meantime, let's get started on Frank Sinatra. So, who is Frank Sinatra? I don't think there's anybody alive who doesn't know who Frank Sinatra is. He was famous for decades, um, even when he was part of the Rat Pack. I mean, you think Las Vegas, you think Frank Sinatra. You think Lounge Singers, you think Frank Sinatra. You watch Married with Children, you think Frank Sinatra because it's his song that's the uh, intro to that. So we're going to get right into Frank Sinatra. So we're going to cover uh, a bit of his biography. Um, so Frank Sinatra, it's Frank Sinatra, 1915 and 1998. So, who was Frank Sinatra? He was a singer and actor. He rose to fame singing big band numbers in the 1940s and 1950s. He had a dazzling array of hit songs and albums and went on to appear in dozens of films, winning a supporting acting Oscar for his role in From Here to Eternity. He left behind a massive catalog of work that includes iconic tunes like Love and Marriage, Strangers in the Night, My Way, New York, New York. He died on May 14, 1998 in Los Angeles, California. So Francis Albert Frank Sinatra was born on December 12, 1915 in Hoboken, New Jersey. The only child of uh, Sicilian immigrants, a teenage Sinatra decided to become a singer after watching Bing Crosby perform in the mid-1930s. He had already been a member of the Glee Club in his high school and began to sing at local nightclubs. 
Radio exposure brought him to the attention of bandleader Harry James, with whom Sinatra made his first recordings, including All or Nothing at All, in 1940. Tommy Dorsey invited Sinatra to join his band. After two years of chart-topping success with Dorsey, Sinatra decided to strike out on his own. Now, between 1943 and 1946, Sinatra's solo career blossomed as the singer charted a slew of hit singles. The mobs of Bobby, Soxer fans Sinatra attracted with his dreamy baritone earned him such nicknames as The Voice and The Sultan of Swoon. It was the war years, and there was a great loneliness, recalled Sinatra, who was unfit for military service due to a punctured eardrum. I was the boy in every corner drugstore who'd gone off, drafted to the war. That was all. Sinatra made his movie acting debut in 1943 with the film's reveal with Beverly and Higher and Higher. In 1945, he won a Special Academy Award for The House I Live In, a 10-minute short made to promote racial and religious tolerance on the home front. Now, keep in mind, that was during the World War II. I mean, he was already promoting racial tolerance and things of that nature. He was, uh, in the public eye, Sinatra could do no wrong. Uh, Sinatra's popularity began to slide in the post-war years, however, leading to a loss of his recording and film contracts in the early 1950s. But in 1953, he made a triumphant comeback, winning an Oscar for supporting actor for his portrayal of the Italian-American soldier Maggio in the classic film From Here to Eternity. Although this was his first non-singing role, Sinatra quickly found a new vocal outlet when he received a recording contract with Capitol Records in the same year. It's kind of crazy to think, you know, that the two totally different styles, and yet they kind of ended the same way. Uh, Frank Sinatra um, didn't go to war because of a ruptured eardrum. Meanwhile, Elvis did go to war, and then they both kind of ended their careers, you know, in Vegas. It, it, the, the dynamic between the two is, is pretty interesting, um, especially with the fact that people, you know, say, you know, Elvis uh, broke ground. He was, he was, I don't know how to explain it. He was a, a, a very sexualized in the way that he did things, and Sinatra just kind of had a swagger about him, whereas, you know, Elvis liked to shake his hips and get all crazy, and, and but they were both, you know, essentially described as lover boys, playboys, you know. Um, so Sinatra quickly found a new vocal outlet when he received a recording contract for Capitol Records in the same year. The Sinatra of the 1950s brought forth a more mature sound with jazzier inflections in his voice. Having regained stardom, Sinatra enjoyed continued success in both movies and music for years to come. He received another Academy Award nomination for his work in The Man with the Golden Arm in 1955 and earned critical acclaim for his performance in the original version of The Manchurian Candidate in 1962. Meanwhile, he continued to be a formidable chart presence. When his record sales began to dip by the end of the 1950s, Sinatra left Capitol to establish his own record label, Reprise, in association with Warner Bros., which later bought Reprise. Sinatra also set up his own independent film production company, Artanus. Now, by the mid-1960s, Sinatra was back on top again. He received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award and headlined the 1965 Newport Jazz Festival, the Count Bassey's Orchestra. The period also marked his Las Vegas debut, where he continued on for years as the main attraction at Caesars Palace. And as a founding member of the Rat Pack, alongside Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, and Joy Bishop, Sinatra came to epitomize the hard-drinking, womanizing, gambling swinger, an image constantly reinforced by the popular press in Sinatra's own albums. With his modern edge and timeless class, even radical youth of the day had to pay Sinatra's due. I mean, counterculture giant Jim Morrison of the Doors even said, no one can touch him. Now, the Rat Pack made several films during their heyday. The famed Ocean's Eleven, which I've never seen the original, but I love the George Clooney version. Uh, 
Sergeants 3, 1962, 4 for Texas in 1963, and Robin and the Seven Hoods, 1964. Going back to Ocean's Eleven, if anybody plays Six Degrees of Separation, uh, Ocean's Eleven is always my go-to. Um, now, back in the world of music, Sinatra had a big hit in 1966 with the Billboard number one track, Strangers in the Night, which won a Grammy for Record of the Year. He also recorded the duet Something Stupid with his daughter Nancy, who previously made waves with the feminist anthem These Boots Are Made for Walking. The two reached number one for four weeks with Something Stupid in spring of 1967. Now, by the end of the decade, Sinatra had added another signature song to his repertoire, My Way which is adapted from a French tune and featured new lyrics by Paul Anka. After a brief retirement in the early 1970s, Sinatra returned to the music scene with the album of Old Blue Eyes Is Back, 1973, and also became more politically active. Having first visited the White House in 1944 while campaigning for Franklin D. Roosevelt in his bid for a fourth term in office, Sinatra worked eagerly for JFK's election in 1960 and later supervised JFK's inaugural party in Washington. The relationship between the two soured, however, after the president canceled a weekend visit to Sinatra's house due to the singer's connection to Chicago mob boss Sam Giacana. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, if you remember, but if you know anything about the about JFK, one of his big things was breaking up the mob. He he campaigned on breaking up the mob so much. I mean, that was like his go-to, and then eventually he turned his sights on the CIA, and that's when things kind of went south for him. Now, by the 1970s, Sinatra had abandoned his long-held Democratic loyalties and embraced the Republican Party, supporting first Richard Nixon and later close friend Ronald Reagan, who presented Sinatra with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award in 1985. Now, I get him endorsing Ronald Reagan. I mean, they were both actors, the whole shebang. But I, I, I guess I don't know enough about Richard Nixon to really understand why Sinatra would endorse him. Now, Frank Sinatra... This is his, his love life, at least the public love life, not the behind-the-scenes one. Frank Sinatra married his childhood sweetheart, Nancy Barbado, in 1939. They had three children together. Nancy, who did, you know, these boots were made for walking, born in 1940. Frank Sinatra Jr. and Tina Sinatra, born in 1948, before their marriage unraveled in the late 1940s. In 1951, Sinatra married actress Ava Gardner. After they split, Sinatra married a third time to Mia Farrow in 1966. That union, too, ended in divorce in 1968. And Sinatra married for a fourth and final time in 1976 to Barbara Blakely Marks, the ex-wife of comedian Zeppo Marks. The two remained together until Sinatra's death more than 20 years later. In October of 2013, Mia Farrow made headlines after stating in an interview with Vanity Fair that Sinatra could be the father of her 25-year-old son, Ronan who is Farrow's only official biological child with director Woody Allen, which I believe Woody Allen raised his daughter and then married her later anyway, so maybe she dodged a bullet with that one. In the interview, she also acknowledged Sinatra as the great love of her life, saying we never really split up. In response to the buzz surrounding his mother's comments, Ronan jokingly tweeted, Listen, we're all possibly Frank Sinatra's son. In 1987, author Kitty Kelly published an unauthorized biography of Sinatra, accusing the singer of relying on mob ties to build his career. Such claims failed to diminish Sinatra's widespread popularity. In 1993, at the age of 77, he gained legions of new younger fans with the release of Duets, a collection of 13 Sinatra standards that he recorded featuring the likes of Barbara Streisand, Bono from U2, Tony Bennett, and Aretha Franklin. Now, while the album was a major hit, some critics have said that the quality of the project was kind of eh since Sinatra had recorded his vocals well before his collaborators laid down their tracks. Sinatra performed in concert for the very last time in 1995 at the Palm Desert Marriott Ballroom in California.
On May 14, 1998, Frank Sinatra died of a heart attack at Los Angeles Cedars Cinea Medical Center. He was 82 years old and had at last faced his final curtain. With a show business career that spanned more than 50 years, Sinatra's continued mass appeal can best be explained in the man's own words, When I sing, I believe I'm honest. In 2010, the well-received biography Frank the Voice was published by Doubleday and penned by James Kaplan. The writer released a sequel to the volume in 2015, Sinatra, the chairman, marking the musical icon's continental year. Now, that's all well and cool. That's that's his front. That's you know that's that's what they put, um, pretty much, as his main story, his legacy. Now, there's a whole nother biography that I found based around primarily his mafia ties. So, I'm not saying it tortures his legacy, but it kind of shows you uh, what kind of happened in the backroom deals, how how his family made their money, where they started, and we're gonna get into that right now. So, Frank Sinatra battled battled these rumors of having mafia ties the entire time, uh, and a lot of people think that his career was due to the mafia. How he ended up in Vegas is due to the mafia. And we're gonna get into that. We're gonna talk about how it got to that point, point. and it wasn't just him. I mean, everybody knows that Dean Martin uh, died really young. He uh, he's part of the uh, the Twenty Seven Club. Uh, there's even stuff saying that Sammy Davis Jr made his way into mafia ties somehow so we're, we're gonna get into some of that um but as i said this is all about frank sinatra old blue eyes himself so rumors of sinatra's mafia connections dogged his entire career and the legendary crooner certainly had connections to made men so in 1950 the u.s senate convened a high profile committee to investigate the growing problem of organized crime in america popularly known as the key Faber committee after its chairman, Senator Estes Kefauver, its findings included admissions of the FBI's failure to combat countrywide mob activity, leading to more than 70 local crime commissions to combat the mafia at local level, and a nationwide racketeer influence and corrupt organizations act. Unusually for the time, the proceedings were televised, with more than 30 million viewers eager tuning in to watch the testimonies of infamous gangsters Mickey Cohen, Frank Costello, Jake Greasy Thumb Guzik, and others. Narrowly escaping a public grilling on this occasion was a struggling club singer called Frank Sinatra. Now, counsel Joseph L. Nellis questioned the singer in advance to determine his suitability for the stand, and the Kefauver committee ultimately decided that no real purpose would be served by a Sinatra subpoena. His career was already ailing at the time, and the committee generously opted not to finish him off by tarring him with the mafia brush. So that goes to show you how much uh, your stardom can get you. You know, even the FBI decided, all right, well, let's let's not mess with him right now. He's already got a tarnished career. He's he's starting to fail. Let's uh let's not make it any worse. Now, however, during his questioning, Sinatra nevertheless admitted to more than passing acquaintances with a significant list of made men: Lucky Luciano, Bugsy Siegel, Willie Moretti, and Al Capone's cousins, the Fischetti brothers. Sinatra would not escape similar hearings in the future. While he always denied any mafia involvement, his name kept cropping up. He was called before a joint Senate House Select Committee on Crime, along with his fellow Rat Pack performer Sammy Davis Jr., investigating gambling and corruption related to sport in 1972. There's further public testimony and further denials in the hearings of the Nevada Gaming Control Board in 1981, where Sinatra was seeking to obtain a lucrative gambling license for his Las Vegas interests. They were never proven, but the whispers of Sinatra's intimate links to the mob were never silenced either. 
Was he really part of the Mafia, or was he, as many have concluded, just a groupie in love with the life, but content to watch from the sidelines? Possible Mafia ties stretch all the way back to Sinatra's grandfather's youth in Sicily, the Italian island that was the birthplace of the Cosa Nostra. Frank's grandfather, Francesco Sinatra, was born in 1857 in the hill town of La Cara Friti, 15 miles from the famous town of Corleone. While there's no evidence that Francesco was involved in any dubious undertakings, he lived on the same street as the Luciano family, whose most famous son, Salvatore, nicknamed Lucky, would come to be considered one of the fathers of organized crime in New York in years to come. Lucky's address book even contained the name of the one of Francesco's in-laws, so it's entirely possible that Francesco and the Lucianos were personally acquainted. Francesco Sinatra immigrated to New York in 1900 with his wife and five children. The youngest, Antonio, Frank's father, became an apprentice shoemaker, but also worked as a chauffeur and a professional bantamweight boxer. He had run-ins with the law involving a hit-and-run accident, for which he narrowly escaped a manslaughter conviction and for receiving stolen goods. He married Frank's mother, Dolly, in 1913, and Frank himself was born, an only child, two years later. Dolly was a midwife, known to some as Hatpin uh, Dolly, due to her notoriety for performing illegal backstreet abortions for which she was convicted twice. But she was also heavily involved in local Hoboken and Jersey City politics, working for two successive mayors at a time when the boroughs were infamous for corruption. When she and Antonio opened a bar in 1917, she became well known for bouncing drunks on the streets with her ever-present Billy Club. The bar was the environment in which the young Frank Sinatra grew up, at a time when selling alcohol was illegal, thanks to USA's prohibition laws, and specifically the Volstead Act. Frank would be doing his homework in the evenings in the corner of an establishment that could only remain in business thanks to his father's bootlegging activities with the local gangster Waxy Gordon, who in turn was connected to Lucky Luciano. Hoboken, as a port town, was a major transit point for illicit alcohol shipments and Frank's uncles, Dolly's brothers, were also heavily embroiled in the trade. Prohibition, perversely, was big business if you were on the wrong side of the law. It was the making of the mafia in the United States. Frank's upbringing certainly wasn't racked with hardship. His family, however, rode out the Great Depression in the 1930s to the extent that Dolly bought him a brand new car for his 15th birthday. So he was already on top of the world without realizing he was on top of the world. I mean, his dad was was living large during Prohibition. I mean, they had, I just imagine Frank's upbringing, seeing all these lounge singers in the back of a speakeasy in his own bar. I mean, that's regardless of whether or not there was any true, true mafia ties for him at that age. He was there. He was part of it. He saw it. He was in Jersey at the time. He, he got to see he got to see the flappers. He got to see, you know, all these big bands. He, he got to be just a part of that. And at that, at such a, at, at, at such an age, where you're highly, highly impressionable, how could you not fall in love with that scene? How could you not fall in love with the idea of it? I mean, to this day, there's still people who are into big band swing music. You know, it's it's. Uh, I mean, speakeasies have even become kind of a, a, uh, almost like a scene in of its own. Where like yeah you've got the bar front but then you got like this cool little spot in the back and there you know so how could he especially at that age 15 getting your first car it's all coming possibly from mob money you know your dad's already bootlegging you already have that that uh, I almost want to say like ID idea of like grandeur of this type of lifestyle so despite his constant exposure to mob activities Frank seized on a different racket very early in life. He gave his first public performance 
singing along the player piano in a Sinatra bar and grill at the age of about eight years old. Misty-eyed tough guys would give him pocket money for his renditions of sentimental popular songs of the day, and a future star was born. His first professional break as a singer came in 1935 when he was 20. As a member of local singing group, the Hoboken Four, they were a trio until Dolly leaned in on them to let Frank join, probably with her billy club. This led to years of singing in clubs and bars in New York and around the country, an occupation which fraternizing with mobsters and their bosses would have been completely unavoidable. Organized crime went hand in hand with the bar business, and even after prohibition ended, the mob remained silent partners in many businesses. They were also heavily involved in the music industry, controlling most of the jukeboxes nationwide and therefore dictating what records would be successful. Saloons are not run by the Christian Brotherhood, Sinatra hedged in later life. A lot of guys were around that had come out of prohibition or ran pretty good saloons. I worked in places that were open. They paid, they came backstage, they said hello, they offered you a drink. If St. Francis of Assisi was a singer and worked in saloons, he'd have met the same guys. That doesn't make him part of something. Sinatra enjoyed a very good year in 1939. He had a contract with bandleader Tommy Dorsey, a hot enough act for Sinatra's national profile to be hugely increased. In his first year with Dorsey, Sinatra recorded more than 40 songs and topped the charts for two solid months with I'll Never Smile Again. But Sinatra's relationship with Dorsey was a troubled one, and their partnering and their parting in 1942 began the first public rumbling Sinatra's possible mafia connections. So, with his profile and the increase, Sinatra was keen to go solo, but Dorsey refused to release him from a contract that still had years to run. This put Frank in a difficult position. He was being well paid, but his career was not of his own. Now, that's actually really, really common. I knew a guy when I was playing in bands back in the day who uh, was in his 30s, and he had gotten signed to Capitol Records when he was 16 years old. And because he never fulfilled his contract, this dude was still, still paying money to Capitol Records um, late into his 30s. We're talking 16, 17, 18 years later, he was still paying them money. So, be, you know, for all you musicians out there, before you sign in that dotted line, make sure, make sure you completely understand that contract. Because whatever you do not fulfill, you do owe. It's a contract. It's, it's, and they can afford much, much, much better lawyers than you. So, if he broke his contract, he would owe considerable chunks of his income to Dorsey for the next decade, a clause Sinatra naturally found unsavory. Now, lawyers desperately searched in vain for any loopholes in the deal that would allow Sinatra to walk free, and it looked like Dorsey would keep his biggest star. However, he was quickly persuaded to change his mind. Sinatra always denied it, but Dorsey's version of the story was that he found himself visited by Willie Moretti and two sharp-suited men. Willie fingered a gun and told me he was glad to hear I was letting Frank out of our deal, Dorsey recalled. I took the hint. A smart man. The young crooner made the most of his opportunity, and the next few years saw Sinatra mania grip the U.S. as the singer recorded hit after hit after hit after hit, played to sell out crowds, caused near riots wherever he went, became a ubiquitous presence on television, and launched a film career. There was also resentment, though. As with the advent of World War II, he somehow avoided military service. Rumors were rife that he had paid his way out of the war, although the FBI never found any evidence of this. While other sources, other sources suggest that he deemed unfit on psychological grounds and because of a perforated eardrum. I would like to find out more about that psychological grounds. 
uh, whatever the reason, pictures of him at home, cigarette in one hand and a drink in the other, surrounded by beautiful women and living the superstar lifestyle, did not endear him to those in uniform and their families. That's the main difference. He kept on living the swinger lifestyle while Elvis went on to even make war movies. You know, there was two different types of fame, two different types of public eye, two different types of portrayal. But Sinatra always stayed true to himself, whereas Elvis changed over the years. He changed himself a lot over the years. But I feel like Elvis seemed to always capture the hearts, whereas there's more of a mystique about Frank Sinatra. He was living a lifestyle that nobody else could even fathom at the time, you know? Now, however, that controversy was a drop in the ocean compared to the fear of a <laughs> drop in the ocean compared to what had erupted when Sinatra was photographed in Cuba in 1947. Now, if you know your history, shortly after World War II, all of a sudden the Red Scare came, eventually leading into the Cold War, eventually leading into the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, in 1947, he was caught at a mob celebration for Lucky Luciano's release from jail. Now, the incriminating pictures showed Sinatra with his arm around Luciano on a hotel balcony, Luciano at a Havana nightclub, and with the Fischetti brothers at the airport, disembarking a plane with a case in hand. Why would he have been carrying his own luggage? Comedian and movie star Jerry Lewis, you guys remember Jerry Lewis, the former partner of Rat Pack Lieutenant Dean Martin, later alleged that Sinatra used to carry money for the mob. Sinatra came, claimed that the case was full of art supplies and that he couldn't have physically carried the $2 million he was accused of trafficking out of the U.S. Now, journalist Norman Mailer quickly established that considerably more than $2 million fits easily into an attaché, debunking old Blue Eyes argument. Now, if there was a doubt about what was in the case, Sinatra's presence at the mob shindig was inarguable. Sinatra was close to Joe Fischetti, who was a talent agent for mob-owned clubs all over the U.S. and had agreed to the impromptu Havana trip while holidaying with his wife Nancy across the water in Miami. Once in Cuba, Sinatra claimed he learned the embarrassing truth that he was ensconced at a mafia convention and reasoned it would be impolite, not to say dangerous, to make excuses and leave. He stayed and performed for the Goodfellas, but several witnesses confirmed that he displayed little reserve in accepting the mob's hospitality, which included hotel room orgies with plain loads of call girls. It was as if Sinatra felt right at home, and many of his Havana acquaintances would remain with him during his later Las Vegas years. So he's already trying to fight it, saying no, 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 no. But then throughout his career, these people are right there. But, I mean, you get a good entourage, you don't want to lose them. Before the glittering lights of Vegas and the Rat Pack years, though, came the doldrums on Sinatra's star began to wane in the U.S. Uh, outshone by younger up-and-comers like teen heartthrob Eddie Fisher, Sinatra was now in his 30s, failed to launch the successful television career he'd hoped for, and actually attempted suicide in 1951. That's something I didn't know until I found this article. I had no idea that Frank Sinatra had actually attempted suicide. But he achieved one of the greatest comebacks of all time when he landed a role in the 1953 movie From Here to Eternity, for which he won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for playing Angelo Maggio, a down-on-his-luck Italo-American GI. Once again, evidence suggests that he didn't achieve that success entirely on merit. The head of Columbia Studios, Harry Cohn, had been adamant that Sinatra would not be cast in the film until a phone call from gangster Johnny Roselli persuaded him it was in his best interest after all. The alleged episode was the inspiration for Mario Puzo and his novel The Godfather for the part in which studio head Jack Waltz is terrorized 
into casting Johnny Fontaine in his movie by a horse's head being left in his bed. Roselli's display of power was less over, but it is alleged just as impactful. Having helped Sinatra revive his career, it was unlikely that the mob would let him out of their clutches. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover famously describes Sinatra as having a hoodlum complex, and it's clear that he relished the dark glamour of associating with gangsters and criminals. The reality, though, was that he was as much in thrall with the Mafia as he would have been to Tommy Dorsey if he'd failed to break his contract all those years ago. When they asked him for free performances in support of one of their causes, he would jump to oblige. In 1953, when Mafia fortunes were being invested and making Las Vegas the gambling capital of the world, Sinatra was an important pawn in their game. If Vegas was to attract visitors, it needed a roster of star attractions and performers. Sinatra was to be a regular fixture at the mob run Sands Hotel and Casino, and returned for a 2% stake in the operation. This was big business. The Sands became his home, away from home, until the late 1960s and in the mid-1970s. Another incriminating photograph would haunt him through the media. He was snapped backstage at the mob-built Westchester Premier Theater in New York with his arm-run crime boss, Carlo Gambino. The FBI kept the file open on Sinatra for five decades until his death in 1998. They stated Sinatra dressed like a gangster, talked like a gangster, behaved like a gangster, grew up around gangsters, and fraternized with gangsters. Perhaps the greatest irony is that he was never actually a made man. His relationship with the mob was clearly beneficial to both sides. Sinatra got fame and fortune, and the mob had a tame star who could be used to boost their coffers and shore up their investments when necessary. If Sinatra was instrumental in establishing Las Vegas, Las Vegas was equally important in the 1950s comeback. But while the singer was clearly starstruck by the mob, it's unclear whether the mob was similarly dazzled or simply saw Sinatra as expedient as long as he behaved. I'd rather be a Don for the Mafia than President of the United States, is a quote often attributed to the singer. If that's true, it seems that he never really got his way after all. So it's it's almost kind of a sad ending. He he's wanted so badly, so badly to have his own career and, and be able to make ways on his own and in doing so and getting the help that he did to, to branch out, he ended up pretty much signing another contract for life with the mob. So if what he says is true and, and you know, he didn't have a choice, that's that's a very terrible existence. And it's almost reminiscent of, of what pop stars go today. I mean you can't get on Instagram or anywhere else without seeing Britney Spears lose her fucking mind because her dad controls her contract. Same thing with Jessica Simpson. I mean, there's a lot of these stars from childhood that that have overbearing parents that run their life. I mean, the mob is a little different. Your parents won't fucking kill you. You know, well, I mean, that's not what we talk about in most of our episodes. Apparently your parents can kill you, but, you know, in this day and age, having the mob run your shit, it doesn't sound like that's something that even happens anymore. I mean, I'm sure they're still out there. I'm sure the mob is still doing stuff, but it's nothing like it was. I mean, especially in the early 1900s in this country where it was... We're, we're breaking away from, I mean, they, you know, they refer to the West Coast as the wild, wild west in Arizona and New Mexico and all that other stuff, but when it comes to organized crime, that's exactly what it was on the East Coast. You know, it was, it was the wild, wild west. And it's so crazy to think that just a common lounge singer, you know, had ties to Al Capone, had ties to, I mean, you name it. It's, it's, it's crazy to me that the FBI even kept a profile on the guy. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's the two different sides of Frank Sinatra. You had family man, singer, actor, and then you had uh, 
mob pond, you know, and uh, I can't help but feel bad for the guy. And then, you know, now you got Frank Sinatra Jr. all over Family Guy and, and everything else like that. Like there's, and there's still kind of like a little like wink at Mafia ties in that show. And so you never know. We're going to be doing a lot more of these. Um, I wanted to start off with Frank Sinatra because he's, he's such a, a big name and, and, uh, and I thought it was kind of cool doing kind of a mafia thing because we haven't done an episode on the mafia yet, which I, I'd really like to. We're going to get to that eventually. Um, and not just that, but somebody who, who just crossed multiple planes, acting, singing, songwriting, uh, being in groups, being a solo artist, you know, the whole thing. So that's kind of cool. And it's even kind of cooler to think that he was uh, he was roaming around and, and lounge singing during the days of... Uh, of George Metesky, the Mad Bomber, you know, in New York, the same city. So it, it's cool how every episode we do kind of has an accidental tie to a previous episode or the timelines mesh. And so we started the first episode of Profiling Pain Ever in the 1930s in New York, and, and we kind of did the same with, with the side profiles. Um, but, yeah, that's it. I mean, that's, that's Frank Sinatra in a nutshell. We're going to be doing, uh, as I said, more Ted Bundy on the next episode. I'm going to be covering Richard Ramirez after uh, Ted Bunny, so we're going to be talking about the Night Stalker. Um, And then, as I said, we're going to be teaming up with uh, Rap Sheets in October. In the meantime, you guys should go check them out. I'm going to put their their Facebook page in the show notes. But uh, Rap Sheets, that's facebook.com forward slash Rap Sheets. Again, if you guys have any suggestions at all for... uh, for side profiles, any any cool music cases that you, you want to hear or, or anybody that you, you think is interesting. Um, we are going to get into uh, Norwegian metal. There's actually quite a few cases in Norwegian metal, uh, black metal. Um, a lot of a lot of rap. There's gonna, we're going to get into a lot of uh, rap cases. What else? What else? Um, like I said, we're not going to do Biggie and Tupac. That's, that's a huge case. That's one of those things where that's gonna be multiple episodes for right now i just want to do short and sweet little little one hitters um so you guys have something else to listen to in between episodes we are going to be doing a lot more episodes a lot more uh a lot more content than we have in in, in previous years i mean this has been going on for two years now so uh a lot more content um we've talked about merchandise before there is going to be a store online we're gonna have some merchandise up here hopefully in the next month or so um haven't quite figured out what we're gonna do uh group wise yet to get fuego and rocio back so it might just be me hiding in the closet speaking in the dark to you guys again for for a couple episodes and then uh i think once we get down to like the the major major um profiling profiling uh you know uh psychology of it all we'll, we'll have the three of us on again i like the i like the dynamic of the three of us and I don't want to lose that. So, um, what else? That's it. Um, as usual, check out Fuego on everything Fuego does with his Hell to Stephen King page on the uh, on all the socials. Um, check out Rocio uh, on anything that she does. I still got to get the name of her damn podcast so I can actually talk about it. Um, and that's it. Uh, so, October... Mid-October, end of October, we'll be releasing the crossover episode with Rap Sheets. Like I said, it's going to be on Jam Master J. Um, we might even talk a little bit about 6 9 and whatever the fuck he's doing in Chicago all the time. 
and then uh and who knows maybe maybe by the time that fucking episode comes out they're i god i don't know he's uh he's a nut job all on himself i don't know what the fuck's wrong with these mumble rappers these days they, they come out for two years and they like fall off or die it's fucking insane um and that's yeah that's pretty much it so thank you guys again for listening um the last episode i did on ted bundy was kind of short and sweet with the ted bundy info um the next one's gonna be a lot fatter a lot meatier uh gonna cover some things that i missed for washington um and then once it gets into utah and colorado it just gets crazy and then uh what else uh current events um there i don't know if you guys have noticed or not but there's an election coming up um going to try to avoid the politics but you know I, even in this damn frank sinatra episode we, there, a little bit of politics got sprinkled in there but yeah that's uh that's pretty much it and then uh yeah that's all i got so thank you guys so much um download share subscribe all that crap go on uh apple Podcasts, get some likes there uh we're on stitcher we're on spotify or uh, wherever the hell you're listening to us obviously it's where we're at um, and more and more uh, sites are popping up every day. We haven't made our way to Pandora yet. I don't know if that's something that's going to happen. That's really up to uh, Age of Radio. Um, big thank you again to Age of Radio and, and Jeremy and, and everything that they do there. Uh, they got a million and one different podcasts popping up all the time. So make sure to go to their bizarre page. Uh, that's ageofradio.org check that out and all the uh cool little podcasts there they got i mean everything murder under the midnight sun they got breakdown from the couch they, i mean it's they got they got sports podcasts financial podcasts um jeremy actually does his own thing uh, called uh, age of jeremy he's he's actually the uh the company runner for age of radio and he does stuff every day on instagram so check out age of jeremy um facebook.com you can go check out uh, addicted to podcasting on Facebook. Definitely like Age of Radio on Facebook. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Uh, check out Profiling Pain Podcast on Facebook. Uh, also on Instagram. And uh, that's about it for the socials. I don't touch Twitter. So you can follow Fuego on Twitter. And uh, that's it. So you guys just keep on keeping on. And uh, stay metal, mofos. Thanks. <laughs>